beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Alrighty, and uh, good morning from California, and welcome to the Wisdom of the Soul. This is uh, September 18th of 2022. Program number, I think, is uh, 29. I'm so happy that you're with us today because I see today's class as being really important, a very rich and meaningful concept, very... uh, complex also. So we may take a couple of weeks on this. We'll see how it goes. But I'm talking about a philosophical model called the middle way. And we'll do our opening meditation in a minute, and then we'll uh, explore what is meant in philosophy, particularly Eastern philosophy. And though not exclusively, to a large degree, a Buddhist concept, the middle way, sometimes called the third way. And it opens up multiple possibilities after that. Once we crack out of dualism, (laughs) that either or binary, all or nothing view of absolutes, that's what it is. Dualism gets its strength from the notion that everything must be absolute, that there are no relatives, that everything is objective, that nothing is subjective. And that dualism becomes a prison for us. The third way is a way out of that prison. But it opens up other options. And yet there's something about the number three. That's where we'll begin today. What is it about the number three? So I'm excited to get into it. Let's do our opening focus, and we'll talk about the middle way, and somewhere around noon, maybe a little bit after, we'll go to Q&A. So let's do it. Sit up straight. Close your eyes. Bring your awareness into being present in your body. And three, eyes open, back in the room, wide awake, back in the room, feeling fine. Big breath, big breath. Maybe a stretch, like you're waking up. You can always take another big breath if you want. Welcome yourself back to the wide awake state. Feeling fine, better than before. When I think about the number three... One of the first things that occurs to me is the stability of the triangle. It's quite remarkable. And there is folk wisdom from around the world, from every continent. This ancient folk wisdom about the triangle, the number three, 
and often the three-legged stool. Sometimes we hear about the African three-legged stool. It's so ancient, the concept that a three-legged stool never rocks. That's why a camera tripod has three legs. Why not four? Well, because they would all need to be exactly the same length or it would teeter. The beauty of three is that every leg could be a different length and it's still perfectly stable. Whether it's a camera tripod, a stool, a table. What a magical number. Now, if a chair or or table <laughs> had two legs, it wouldn't be very stable, right? Uh, totally. Uh, it might be stable in one plane, but in the other plane, uh, two is not enough. One, one leg is, is certainly not stable. Though a monopod, you could stable a camera a little bit with a monopod, but not like a tripod. You can't walk away from a monopod, your camera will fall over. <laughs> And if you have four or more legs on the stool or the table, again, each has to be exactly the same length. Adding more legs, six legs, eight legs, ten legs on the stool or table, that doesn't help. It's still going to teeter unless every one of those legs is exactly the same length. So less than three is no good. More than three doesn't help, but three rock solid. Well, I bet... Pythagoras had that in mind when he started musing about the mathematics of the triangle. And of course, we remember the Pythagorean theorem from school about the right triangle. If, and, and when, maybe I should say when, one of those inside angles on the triangle is 90 degrees, you have a right triangle. And this miraculous formula of squaring one side and uh, adding it to the square of the other side equals the square of the hypotenuse, the long side. The hypotenuse is the line opposite the right angle. That's C squared. How does that happen, that A squared plus B squared equals C squared? That if we know the length of two of the legs, any two, we can figure out the third. And there's countless formulas that work that way. Time and distance, like miles per hour. And all these formulas that have three elements. And if you know two, you can get the third. Three is just an incredibly stable number. And then along comes Bucky Fuller and the geodesic dome. And he talks about the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. Wow, what does that mean? How could the whole be greater than the sum of the parts? He called it synergy, or the, the strength of a geodesic dome, for example, is far stronger than you would expect if you just added up the strength of the various components. How can it be? How could the total be greater than all the parts added together? 
um, the three-act play. There are plays with two acts and some with four, but the three-act play, there's something, there's a nice rhythm in that. We talk about all events as having a beginning and a middle and an end. Jokes usually come in three. The farmer had three daughters, you know, or these three guys walked into a bar, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister, you know. The jokes are always set up. Uh, Here's the premise, here's the repetition, and then ba-dum-bump, the third third is the punchline, right? Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. If you're a writer, you might notice the tendency that you have to write in threes. This is true because of this and this and this. It just feels complete. It's like music. There's certain chords in music that sound like the music is done. And then other chords that have suspended notes in them that don't resolve. And they just don't sound done. There's something really complete about them. Something whole about the number three. And if we go... To our initial classes back in February and March, we spent a significant amount of time in the first several classes of this uh, Wisdom of the Soul meeting, talking about the Divine Trinity and how it was rooted in paganism, father, child, mother, and also ancient Egyptian hermetic philosophy with uh, Osiris, Horus, and Isis, the king, the prince, and the queen. There are many fundamentalist Christians that reject the Trinity, the Christian Trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which again is Father, Son, Mother, because it's pagan, because women are part of it. That's, that's you know, the patriarch of the church had to make sure women were not in the Trinity. In fact, they, they turned Mary Magdalene into a prostitute for about 800 years. Catholic Church only backed off that in the 1960s. But she was declared to be a prostitute because she was, in fact one of uh, Jesus' favorite disciples. She seemed to understand what he was saying more than anybody else. And the Gnostic Gospels or the Nag Hammadi Gospels, the Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in 1947 near Nag Hammadi, they include a book of Mary and a book of Philip and a book of Thomas that the... uh, fundamentalists don't want to look at because they offer a Gnostic view, a very different view of Christianity that basically the Christ is in every every one of us, each and every one of us. We'll talk more about the Dead Sea Scrolls at some point in the future. But that's why it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit rather than Father, Son, Mother or uh, King, Prince, Queen. But what that really represents is spirit, consciousness, and matter. You see, the center of that trinity comes third, but stands as number two. Number three is the middle element. Whether we're talking about the Christ, 
between Father Spirit and Mother Matter, Mother Earth, or the consciousness between Spirit and Matter, or on a lower correspondence, the emotional nature between mind and body. That's number three. The middle is number three. Early in class, again, going back a few months, we had a riddle that we offered you. What comes third stands as number two and makes the three into a one. And that's part of the magic of number three. While it comes third, it stands in between the binary, in between the two, spirit and matter, God and man, father and mother. So it comes third, but stands as number two, and it makes the three into a one. In other words, it's that third element that stands in the middle that makes dualism unitary in nature. It's love, the magnetic, attractive nature of love as consciousness or awareness that allows the one spirit to manifest as multiplicity all these apparently separated forms of matter without being diminished or even affected for that matter. So how do we deal with that paradox of the one and the many? If we're all one, and yet clearly we've got fingerprint evidence and DNA proof that we're all unique, not just diverse, but as unique as snowflakes, even grains of sand. This is, the universe refuses to replicate itself. How could both things be true? Only with a middle element, only with the the magnetic nature of love that allows unity, the oneness of divinity, the creative force, the cause, to manifest as an effect all these different unique <laughs> forms without being diminished, without losing its oneness. It takes a third element in the middle, comes three, stands as number two, and makes the three a one. It is an enigma. It is a paradox. Let it be a paradox. If you find that a little too airy-fairy and and you want to stick with empirical physical stuff, okay, we're all made from the same star. Every element in the periodic table, except for hydrogen and helium, one electron, two electrons, everything else is made inside a star. All the metals, all the noble gases, every element is manufactured in a star. And then that star peters out, it supernovas, and all the elements of the periodic table go out into the world and become asteroids and meteors and comets and interstellar gases. And sometimes they come together as planets. And sometimes a planet like Earth gets hit by another big rock and a big piece goes off. And because of the nature of gravity, all those pieces come together and we find that we have a moon. Imagine our surprise in the 60s when we went to the moon and found by sampling the rocks and bringing them home, they were of the Earth. 
<laughs> the moon at one point was the earth. And so each of us is of that. We eat food that's of the clay of the earth, right? And we're all made out of the same stuff. And yet some of this stuff is animated. Some of it's alive. Some of it's conscious. Some of it's sentient. You are. I am. So are the trees and the flowers. They respond to their environment. They're alive. They're aware. They're not as aware of the flowers and the trees and the grasses as the animal kingdom, but the animal kingdom is not as aware as the human kingdom. And not only are some humans more or less aware than others, but each one of us on any given day is more or less aware. Who doesn't know the feeling of... Uh, being caught off guard because we just were not aware of what was going on. Sitting at a traffic light after it turned green is the example that I always think of. And somebody kind of go, eh, eh, hey, Benner, wake up. Where are you? Well, I wasn't taking a nap, though I've been known to do that. I was just someplace else. I just went away. I was not aware. Again, wisdom begins with Becoming aware of all that we are not aware of. So the number three, powerful. The middle way in Eastern philosophy, and particularly in Buddhism, is similar, as I said in my newsletter this week, to the straight and narrow. Uh, we're going to get him back on the straight and narrow, this juvenile delinquent, this child, this bad actor, this, we're going to reform this prisoner and get him back on the straight and narrow. What does that mean? Well, it's a biblical reference, actually. It comes out of Matthew, where I think the phrase is, uh, the gate is straight and the way is narrow. To the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you got to be good. And you don't have to be perfect, but you got to form the intention to pursue virtue. This is especially important in Eastern philosophy. In Judeo-Christianity, there's always debate about works and whether works or faith are sufficient to redeem your soul, and ensure life everlasting. So we'll allow that debate to go on. But in, in the East, uh, the idea of embodying virtue is very, very important. To do the best you can to walk the straight and narrow, to be good, to be honest, to practice loving kindness, to be compassionate, empathetic to be merciful, to be generous and tolerant, and kind and forgiving. These are virtues. These are ethics. This is morality. One of the things that we find so distressing and that which presents itself is, is politics is how unethical and corrupt and indecent it is without regard to partisanship, just across the board. We have an economy based on gambling and a government based on bribery. 
Oh, you can call them campaign donations, but you you can get a law passed for five or ten thousand dollars. Not that hard. Easy to get cynical about the level of corruption. But better to spend your time just on modeling virtue to the best of your ability because it's difficult. There are so many temptations to just throw in the towel. One of the, one of the curious things about people who lie is they rationalize it by telling themselves repeatedly, everybody lies. So I would be a fool not to lie. And cheaters tell themselves, everybody cheats. I'm going to fall behind if I don't cheat. And thieves say, well, everybody steals stuff. I've got to steal, lie, and cheat. Everybody else is stealing and lying and and (laughs) cheating. I better get mine. As long as I don't get caught. Right? Well, it's not true that everybody lies and cheats and steals. We've talked a lot about and will continue to emphasize the importance of intention. Our class last week about karma danced all around intention. Karma is not merely action, behavior, speech. It's in the way you feel. It's in the way you think. But primarily, karma is generated by our intention. And so it's noble to form the intention to be a virtuous person. And then cut yourself some slack (laughs) if you're going to forgive others you've got to be able to forgive yourself if you screw up did you do it intentionally? no, I didn't really appreciate what I was getting myself into okay, well, learn from it and then do it differently next time or don't do that again intention so much forgiveness that becomes available of others and yourself when you understand the fundamental nature of intention beneath our thoughts and our feelings and the way we speak and behave. And of course, the only thing behind intention then is awareness, consciousness. The one thing you so fundamental that you just can't get behind awareness. So be aware of intending to embody virtue. Okay, that's the straight and narrow. We also have the razor's edge in literature. Somerset Mom, I believe, wrote a book 80 years ago or something called The Razor's Edge. Uh, there's reference to it in Apocalypse Now with uh, Marlon Brando and Martin Sheen walking razor's edge. What is that razor's edge? That's the straight and narrow. That's the middle way. Now, the thing about the middle way is the razor's edge is a good allegory. Straight and narrow is a good allegory to a point. But the thing about the way the middle way balance to be centered, equanimity in our lives, the way it plays out is that it's not straight. It meanders. It's a serpentine path. Often it's a spiralic path, but it's dynamic and ever-changing. You've noticed, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure, 
Today will not be like yesterday, except in some broad general ways, but specifically, this will be a very different day. Surely you remember as little kids, we would lay in the grass. Imagine having the time to do that. And watch the clouds. That was sufficient to entertain us. To lay in the grass and watch the clouds, and they would always move. And we would see faces, we would project faces into those clouds and shapes and even share with each other. Oh, it looks like a horse running. A horse? No, that looks like a pig to me. And <laughs> You're both wrong. It's a cloud. <laughs> we do that same projection, of course, in our waking lives when we look at other people and project upon them your particular concerns, your point of view. Projection is a big issue. We'll Again, an idea we'll return to, but I want I want you to understand that while these allegories of 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 being honest and a good person, walking the straight and narrow, or following the delicate balance of the razor's edge, uh, when when we open it up to a philosophy like the third way, the path will wander a bit. It'll meander, but you need to remain on the path and not get off the trail. Getting off the well-worn path can be disastrous. I have a story in my book, Fearless Intelligence, about me getting off the trail because of uh, the impending darkness. And I was far from a campsite, and I thought of had to backtrack, and I knew a shortcut, but it took me off the trail, and you'll have to read the book to, f- <laughs> to find out what happens. But initially, it's, uh, it's not good, because I got off the trail. I allowed fear to get the better of me. So oddly, it's fear that often pulls us out of the middle way, off the balanced and centered path of goodness and truth and beauty. But even though it's fear that drags us off in one direction or another, fear wins the day and is then compounded. And remember, fear, stress, anxiety, whatever we call it, it shatters awareness. It just destroys consciousness. We get stupid. We make mistakes. Oh, I didn't see that. How could I have missed that? Why didn't I think of that? Because you were stressed. And to deal with stress and anxiety and fear, the part of the brain called the amygdala shuts down the executive functions of the higher brain, of the frontal lobes and and the neocortex that connects it all. It's called the amygdala hijack. It literally shuts down creativity and imagination and 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 higher intelligence <laughs> and and leaves you with this binary either or all or nothing right or wrong winners or losers fight or run like hell and you know you're dealing with an anxious stressed frightened person 
when they argue or just simply chat with you from an either-or place, an all-or-nothing place. Well, what are you going to do? You either got to do this or or not. You know, you got to do it their way. It's my way or the highway. There's only two ways anything can be. And, and all differences are opposites. There's a crazy one. Any very, we, we could... We could agree on 99% of what's happening in the world. But that 1% comes up and you'd think we were bitter enemies. You see it in relationships with people. People in general would like to think this is not you. I'm not accusing any individuals here. But I think people in general say the meanest, most hurtful things to the people they love the most. And never consider why that is so. When you do that, when you're seduced by binary thinking, if seduced is the right word, when you're forced into it by fear, stress, and anxiety, you lose the rainbows in between, or some would say the shades of gray between all or nothing, between the black and white world in which most people live. There's rainbows, not just shades of gray. There's rainbows. There's not only a third way, but if there's a third way of looking at things, you know, permutation, combination, variation, then there must be a fourth way. And perhaps there's a fifth option. And maybe there's a sixth way of looking at things, or a seventh, or an eighth, or a ninth, or maybe we can put the third way and the eighth way together and get a fifteenth way. You know what I'm saying? I teach in my private sessions, and I might as well share it with you guys, though I won't dwell on it today, what I call the choices chant. It's four elements. It begins with, I have choices. That's huge right there. Just to have that little tool in your back pocket or your purse, I have choices. Anytime you feel you don't have choices (laughs) and you're locked in this everything or nothing mode of thinking, like most people, where most people live, just say to yourself, wait a minute, I have choices. It's, I mean, even in school, some exams were true and false, but most were multiple choice. At least you had a, 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 a C and a D and an all of the above and a none of the above. And, and then if your teacher was really bright, it was not just a right answer. It had to be the best right answer and uh, two or more of the multiple choices were were right answers, but they weren't as good as the one right answer. And then we leave school and live in a true or false world. Everything or nothing, black or white, men or women, Republicans and Democrats, liberals or conservatives, communists and fascists. There's only two ways anything can be. Not true. So the middle way is a way of avoiding extremes, of standing balanced and centered, embracing all possibility. It is the path to wholeness, don't you see? The middle way is the path to oneness. Christ said, I am the way and the light. Follow me. What does that mean? 
follow your heart. Christ represents love in that trinity. Father aspect, in case you were curious about the relationship between Christ and the Father aspect, the Father represents divine will, the Son represents divine love, and the Mother is the body. She is receptive to the impress of divine will, the energy, the ideation, divine will, the plan. Some people call it a plan. Divinity knows what it's doing. There is a plan. There's an order. There's rules. There's laws. The middle way is one of them. Karma is another law. Gravity is a law. So the father aspect is divine will. The son is divine love. The mother is intelligent activity. The physical receptive nature of matter to spirit and consciousness. Spirit's sort of like the raw material. Consciousness, the love aspect, awareness is the way we mold that raw energy into the outcomes that we experience in our lives. Whether it's healing or solving a problem or the so-called law of attraction, your life is a reflection of your intentions and your attitudes and your belief systems. Wasn't that many weeks ago that we spent quite a bit of time on the whole idea that all happiness and all suffering exists in the mind. Part of enlightenment and becoming more conscious as you move in that direction is recognizing that life is not done to you. It flows through you and the world reflects your awareness, your consciousness, as well as the consciousness, the awareness, the beliefs and attitudes of other people. Obviously, none of us is an island. We're, we're in the mix. We're in the blend of everybody's beliefs and expectations as well. But life mirrors us. So to change your life, you change yourself, right? That's just an introduction to what is meant by the middle way. And again, in emotions, because emotional intelligence is so critical to personal and transpersonal or spiritual development, this idea of emotional equanimity to be balanced and centered in your emotions, to be calm and relaxed, aware of how you feel. You don't deny your feelings. You don't ignore your feelings. You don't repress your feelings. You want to be more aware of them so they're easier to manage. Imagine if you saw your anger coming a mile away while it was just a little a little guy on the horizon and and you look at yourself and you say, you know, I'm starting to get really upset about this. This is starting to really piss me off. And if I don't uh, do something differently here, if I don't remind myself that I have choices, and they didn't tell you what the other three were, but number two is there are always more choices that are immediately apparent. Three is our choices are in our perception and response. 
not controlling the stimulus. And four, I choose my outlook and my response for the greater good of all concerned. So you remind yourself that I have choices. I have lots of choices. I have choices I haven't even considered yet. And if I don't begin to explore those, this anger is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon it's going to be all over me. It's going to devour me and it's going to run the show. And then I'm going to say something or do something really stupid. Because all hurtful feelings are rooted in anxiety, stress, and fear. And that shatters awareness. You can't tell me that you have brilliant creative insight when you're angry. (laughs) It doesn't happen. We get stupid as hell. Completely dumb. Saying things, you almost immediately regret, oh my God, what was I thinking? Well, you weren't. The amygdala thought you were in danger, shut down your higher brain function so you couldn't think and put you in this either-or place. It stripped away the third way, the middle way. The whole idea of being balanced and centered as a path to wholeness, don't you see? That's what the middle way is. It's not just a third way. (laughs) It's what unifies the either-or-ness of things, the dualism, and takes us to a non-dual reality. I want to talk more about non-duality in the future. The Buddhist concept is called emptiness, but it's a real confusing term. So we'll approach in time the idea of emptiness, probably using more often than emptiness, non-duality, or wholeness. I mean, what does the word holy mean? What does it mean to be holy? (laughs) It means the whole kit and caboodle, to be whole, with a silent W perhaps, but holistic, right? Complete. Either or is not complete. It's a total war. It leads to conflict and violence and war and animosity and hatred and murder and theft. And either or thinker does not embody virtue. They have a very difficult time embodying virtue, being ethical or moral, because they're so terrified. You have to know peace to be happy. That's the middle way. That's Christ saying, I am the way. The middle of what? Spirit and matter. Father and and Holy Spirit. Father and mother. The son, the offspring of energy and mass. Was consciousness, love, harmony. The harmony between unity and diversity. There's another nice trinity. Unity, harmony, diversity. You know, if everybody sang lyrics to a song that we all knew in any key we wanted, singing any note, that would be diversity. And we'd be singing and maybe having fun, but wouldn't sound very good. Unity, if we're singing all the same note, that's nice. That's sort of like the children's choir. Everybody sings the next note. But look at the beauty in harmony. Harmony is both. We're going to sing different notes, but we're going to be unified in our approach. It's not really a third way, is it? It's a union 
of unity and diversity. So in a, in a unified sense, we're going to coordinate and organize our singing of certain notes, the first, the third, the fifth, the suspended seventh, or the flatted fifth. Not to get into deep music theory, but you know what harmony sounds like. The Beach Boys, right? The Four Tops, The Temptations, <laughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire, a Barbershop Quartet, oh, spare me. The Four Tops, The Linden Sisters. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, Harmony. It's really beautiful. That's the middle way. <laughs> 